This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. We're taking you back to chemistry class because remember, the magazine, it's a special double issue. We gave you some last week. We've got more to come. We're going to dig into some different elements, literally Mm -hmm. and figuratively, help you understand how it affects all aspects of your life. Also got a little fun for you. There's a brand new car that hit the market this week. It's called the Taycan. It's from Porsche. And it's a pretty hot ride. And then we've got Candace Bushnell of Sex in the City fame. She's written a bunch of books. She's got a new one out. She asks, is there still sex in the city? But she also gets into some really deep areas about women and the economy. Love it. Right. Feminism in the age of economic disruption. First, let's start with a preview of this issue and how it came to be. Well, the Periodic Table of Elements, it's celebrating its 150th anniversary. And in keeping with that, this week's magazine is devoted to the table, its contents, and its evolving and growing significance uh, on our world. Smart lineup of stories, gorgeous portfolio of elements online, graphics, pictures, animations. Let's talk about the issue. Let's get into it. Jeremy Keene is an editor over at the magazine. He was the architect of this whole project and as carol said it's gorgeous to look at online a really great read joel weber is the editor of the magazine he joins us as well in our interactive broker studio so joel i want to start with you to just sort of set the table for us a little bit uh early in the year someone said and i don't even think it was jeremy did you guys know that this is the 150th anniversary of the periodic table of elements? And I was like, why would we care about that? And I, I think so want to come to parties Jeremy by and, week. <laughs> and, and others said, actually, this is an incredibly amazing way that we can talk about business and, and things farther afield than business as well. And that became sort of this North Star that we set out to accomplish. And I am just widely, widely and deeply appreciative of Jeremy, who basically made this thing happen. And the beauty of it to me is literally 118 elements. There there will be more. Uh, we talked about the history of it. Dmitry Mendeleev was the one who invented it 150 years ago. It has brought organization to chaos. One of the headlines we have for this is that this is the greatest org chart in business history. Uh, but it, truly, like none of this content would have happened if it w- wasn't for Jeremy. And so, Jeremy, what was the spark for you that you said, we need to dedicate a whole issue and I need to take multiple weeks of, and months of my life and devote it to this? What was that spark? Well, the opportunity to take something where you take a given square on it and you can do a story on mining, it's technology, it's marketing, it's the environment, it's finance. There's all these ways that you can go at any one thing and to have kind of a canvas like that and, and think about, you know, what, what's important, what's interesting. And we, we put out a call for pitches early on. What, what element got more pitches than anything else? Helium. Helium. Yeah, not, what not what is close. the obsession with helium, do you think? Well, when the, the image of sad party balloons, <laughs> you know, for, for kids' birthday parties really, I think, captured people's imaginations a little bit when that, that party city item came out about them having a hard time. One flying. of your editors called it an existential crisis of party city. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. They, it's really great. But it's serious. No, right. We're talking about um, a lack of helium. And right. it's not just about party balloons either, right? No. Well, yeah. So one of, you know, one of the other things that we did for this issue is we did these sort of beautiful photographs of high tech. Um, pieces of equipment, lasers, night vision goggles that use a lot of different elements. And one of the ones that we did where helium is really important is MRI machines. 
So, you know, when you're talking about securing a supply of helium, it's diagnostics. Well, and the helium story, I think, is a great example in part because you've got some great characters woven into this mega narrative that is this issue. Tell us how you found sort of the right people through which to tell the stories, Jeremy. You know, with with a something like that, when, whenever you're talking about a mining story, it, it's often, well, we don't know if it's going to come out of the ground yet. Um, and you know we got the, we got an, a pitch from a writer named Paul Tullis who said you know there's some geological evidence that Tanzania might have the helium we want, but here's all these interesting things about how hard it is to recover helium generally, how hard it is in in a country like Tanzania where where you know the economies the infrastructure is still growing, you don't necessarily know if you can get it from the ground right. to market. Um, so, so, so we cover like 118 elements. Sometimes we have big stories that touch on a couple. Other times it's you know a story devoted solely to, to one element. When you kind of think about the smorgasbord that we've developed here, what, what were the ones that you know are your prized pieces, oh, your favorites? You know what? I really developed like a, some fondness for the rare earth elements, and you know partly it's because they were they were in the news a lot because of China and and the the question of China dominating supply but also sort of a cliche about them you know rare earth elements aren't really that rare and it's true but m- most of them are prevalent in the earth's crust but they're really hard to extract and they're they're hard to get them in sufficient concentrations to be economical. Um, you know, there's environmental questions. And China but, has um, done a lot to kind of flood the market, right? Or, or has done things. They control somewhere, I think, between about 70 and 80% yeah. of the market. And a lot of that has to do with just they're willing to do the brute force processing that's required to do it. And um, But it's sort of, they are rare in a way. They might not be scarce, but they're rare. It's hard to to get them out. And once you have them, they're useful in magnets. They're useful in, you know, they're useful. They're strategically important for the military. They're important for solar panels and other clean tech. Much good comes from the periodic table, as does much to be concerned about, including the combinations that are the undesirable byproducts of hydrocarbons. So, Jason, we talk about CO2, but there's also sulfur oxides. Who knew? I did not know. I fully admit it. I didn't <laughs> see too. it coming. We spend so much time talking about carbon emissions, mm-hmm. especially related to the oil industry. Apparently, we need to be worried about sulfur as well. Jack Whittles has the story in this special edition of Bloomberg Business Week. So, Jack, take us right down to the most elemental part of this, sulfur for the oil business. How did you discover this? So, a few years ago, a branch of the UN called the International Maritime Organization, or better known as the IMO, uh, made a rule basically saying that the sulfur content for most of the marine fuel around the world had to go down from 3.5 to 0.5%. Sounds pretty simple, but for the oil industry and the maritime industries, that was a huge upheaval. And since then, we've been writing thousands of stories about how the different sectors are dealing with that transition. What I love about this story is I had no idea um, that in terms of the maritime industry that they were really using a very different type of fuel. Talk to us a little bit about um, high sulfur fuel, what it is, um, and why it's so bad. So high sulfur fuel, as it's known, is used in most ships around most parts of the world at the moment. That is going to change from January next year. So what it is, is when you take a barrel of crude oil, uh, you take it to your oil refinery, you're going to distill it and then put it through various processes to make 
uh, lots of more valuable fuels that we know, like gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and other things. Fuel oil is what is left over from that process, effectively. It, it's the stuff that doesn't distill when you burn a barrel of crude. And so it's sort of seen as a waste product from the refining system, and that is what goes into the world ships at the moment. And it's, and it's dangerous, right? From what I understand, it causes lung cancer, causes heart disease. I mean, this is pretty lethal stuff. Uh, so it's certainly been linked to a number of health conditions, uh, asthma, lung cancer. It's also being blamed for acid rain. Uh, so some environmental issues there as well. Uh, it's also, there was a study which uh, is referred to in the article, I believe it was submitted by Finland to the IMO, and it shows that uh, by bringing this regulation in in 2020 rather than in 2025, uh, there's going to be about half a million premature deaths from uh, lung cancer and heart disease avoided. And so what was the catalyst, as it were, Jack, for this rule to be put into place? Because as you said at the top, I mean, this is a dramatic reduction, just percentage-wise. Mm, yeah, it is. Um, so the IMO has been gradually bringing down the sulfur content in marine fuel. It was, believe it or not, even higher than 3.5% a few years ago. Um, and the catalyst, I, I believe, is it's just human health and the environment, mm -hmm. you know, the, the world, the shipping industry needs to clean up its act. I mean, just for some context, bringing it down to 0.5% is good, but it's still much, much, much higher than what's the sulfur content in like gasoline or diesel in Europe, at least. The gasoline sulfur content is like 10 parts per million. So that's something like, I can't remember exactly, but it's like 0.001%, yeah. something to that order, rather right. than 0.5%. Well, and you also talk in your story about the fact that even if everyone agrees that this is the right thing to do, there are actually incentives mm. for a lot of shipping companies out there to kind of look the other way and, and cheat mm -hmm. the system. Tell us about that. Right. So if you're a ship owner and you... So basically, the, the reason there's a big incentive to cheat is because the different fuels cost very different amounts. So if you want to keep burning that high sulfur, dirty marine fuel that a lot of ships legitimately use now, that's going to cost you something like, uh, let's, say let's say $300 a tonne. Uh, whereas if you want to pay for the cleaner stuff, now we don't want to get too complicated, but basically there are different types of the cleaner stuff, but roughly you might pay $200 a tonne or so more wow. for that cleaner stuff. So if you're burning, say, 80, if you've got a big ship, like a giant oil tanker, and you're burning like 80 tons a day of, of marine fuel, That's and you're saving to the order of two, two to $300 a ton, and you're traveling all the way around the world, that adds up. Well, very quickly. So I'm, there's a massive incentive. I thought that was interesting. In your story, you said it's sold on a massive scale and at such a discount to crew that refiners effectively pay shippers to take it away. So there's so many aspects mm. to this story. There's that environmental aspect, which is crucial. Um, but there is this economic cost, you know, essentially to maybe uh, these shipping companies that their fuel is definitely going to go up in price. And I also think about the suppliers, Saudi Arabia and the United States you talk about. Saudi Arabia may be suffering, mm. the U.S. benefiting. Yeah, so depending on the type of crude that, um, so the type of crude that different countries produce obviously depends on the geology of that country. 
and different types of crude oil produce when you refine them they have different yields so that means that they the what the products that you get out of them vary depending on their geological makeup so the the crude from Saudi Arabia typically has a higher sulfur content than mm. some of the shale oils produced in the US so that means it, it and it's heavier so it naturally produces more of the high sulfur fuel oil that ships use now that we're not going to be able to use anymore so there's going to be less demand for that well it's going to at least weaken the demand for that type of Saudi crude refiners aren't going to want to buy it so there's going to be less demand for it because it makes stuff that you, it's harder to sell now right right so that will hit the Saudi economy to some extent so keeping time something we've done for thousands of years uh, just think about the sundial well we've come a long way from that and yet according to some we can do even better this is really a fun story politics editor Jillian Goodman talking about slicing time into smaller and smaller segments what exactly is going on so atomic clocks we've had them for a long time GPS what are built atomic on atomic clocks? clocks okay so this I, I learned in the course of editing this story atomic clocks use the vibrations of atoms to determine the length of a second so you bombard an atom with radiation of some kind uh, and measure the number of times it vibrates and the number of times it vibrates constitutes a second our second currently is based on the vibration of a cesium atom that's bombarded by uh, microwaves I believe and now they're trying to develop optical clocks which means bombarding an atom with optical light which has a much smaller wavelength than microwaves which means you get more divisions in a second and you can be more precise about how you're measuring it okay so why is this so important this is really important I feel like time is pretty good, even though I'm always late, but I feel like time is pretty good. <laughs> you and me both. Um, I mean, I, you know, as we say in the story, I mean, so GPS is based on it, and a lot of other measurements are based on uh, these very precise increments. And if we can be even more precise, we can be even more precise in it's our like measurement. It's a environment, right? If we can keep breaking things down, you yeah, can kind of exactly. be more precise. And almost, you know, measure from a satellite, say, whether there are minerals underground, you know, really what's going on from way up high. Talk to me a little bit about what's some of the work that's being done at the National University of Singapore. So we talked to a scientist there named Murray Barrett. Um, he thinks uh, that lutetium is going to be the key to unlocking the potential of the optical clock. Um, this is one of a couple of elements that are in the mix here. I think aluminum is also in the mix. Um, and ytterbium is kind of the leader in this race to develop the um, optical clock. But Murray Barrett thinks that lutetium is going to be the one because it's slightly less sensitive to temperature variations, which means that it's more stable. And, which and that's means been the problem before, right, in terms yeah. of the existing time pieces like weather, they're affected by weather, right? So that time exactly. is not consistent necessarily exactly all over the world. Because the other point of an op or, um, uh, atomic clock is that, you know, you're, you're not subject to mechanical variation, right? You can be very precise over a long period of time, but these clocks right now are just too sensitive to really serve that function. And, and again, like I go, like, why is this so important? But you talk about, you know, getting more precise. It can have, you know, vast implications, whether it's in scientific applications mm -hmm. or, you know, industrial applications. And just to kind of put it in perspective, there's a stat in the story I love. Um, it talked about GPS responsible for 1.35 trillion in economic benefits to the U.S. from eight, 1984 to 2017. Mm -hmm. I mean, GPS opened up 
uh, huge. It was huge, yeah. right? And this is what we're talking about, that if we can make time even more precise, we're talking about mm -hmm. a business economic impact. Well, and this is one of those uh, technologies, too, that once we have it, we'll figure out how to use it. You know, we'll figure out how to exploit it. Atomic clocks also, you know, obviously timekeeping has been hugely important over the centuries of history, but atomic clocks and that level of precision, we didn't necessarily know how to use it before things like GPS. So, so how much are, how many, are people all around the globe just working on this, trying to make time kind of dice and slice it even more to make it more precise? I mean, basically, there are little pockets of scientists. You know, we talked about Murray Barrett in Singapore. Right. There's another uh, university, I believe the acronym is NIST in Colorado, and that's mm -hmm. where they're working on the Euterbium clock. And, you know, there's an international sort of standards board that determines, okay, what is the definition of a second? And so, you know, it's it's one of those things that like little, little advances made all over the globe. But we haven't quite met it, right? In terms of figuring yeah. out this optical clock, we haven't quite got there. Yeah, right now, they're the size of a room, they're really unstable, and so the goal is to make something that's really stable and portable so that we can bring it around and actually, you know, put it in a satellite or something like that. Well, that's what's interesting. You take us to Murray's, I think, was it his lab or something, mm -hmm. right? And he's very delicate with his instrument. Exactly, yeah. He was about to show us the, the bit of lutetium that's in his clock and then sort of stopped himself and said, wait, 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 I don't want to disturb anything because one little disturbance can really throw the entire thing off. What, in terms of working with the reporter and editing this story, what was it that really kind of struck you? Oh my gosh. I mean, so one of the things that's really crazy is, so our definition of a second is based on a second. You know, it is a very, it, it's, it's an aroboros of definition. You know, we, we base our definition of a second on what our current best definition of a second is, and then we just slice it ever more finely. So someone at some point in history just decided this is a second, and ever since then we've been figuring out how, how to measure differently. And so it's one of those things where you realize like, oh no, human beings are just people. We do these things, you know, we do what's convenient. Right. Um, there's no, you know, at the bottom of the, st the stack of turtles, there's still just a turtle. Yeah, exactly. Well, I just think it's fascinating that, we, you know, we just take something for granted in terms of time measurement, mm -hmm. right? And then there are scientists working you know, around the world that thinking, okay, wait, we can even dice and slice this mm -hmm. further to make it more right. precise. And thinking about why we would want to. All right, we're talking about time. More, <laughs> more precise time. Jillian, thank you so much. Thanks, Carol. A global mercury crisis is underway. The element often found in the fastest growing market for creams and soaps that lighten the skin. Uh, this story, I just found it so interesting. It's so interesting. Vernon yeah. Silver is with us, and no, he didn't name. This isn't Silver. An, an, an it's an element for the elements <laughs> issue. Uh, but he joins us from London. What a fascinating story this is, Vernon. Tell us Sorry. how you got turned on to this. Your co-author uh, Sherry Prasso, also well known to us over in Asia. Great combination. How'd you get there? Well, Sherry in Hong Kong has been looking at this stuff for, for decades. In fact, outside of the U.S., it's been a really well-known, developing, growing market for lightning creams, whether it's in Asia, Africa, pretty much anywhere outside of, of North America. This is you know, essentially the biggest, one of the biggest cosmetics uh, markets at this point, uh, in excess of $20 billion globally and because of who it appeals to a cross-section you know from the developing world um, there are emerging issues that NGOs who are researching safety and cosmetic safety are looking at uh, about what's actually in these lightening and whitening creams um, and there are several compounds and the one we focused on for the elements issue of Business Week was mercury quicksilver as it's known the stuff that you would normally find in let's say a thermometer you wouldn't necessarily find it uh, or think you would find it in a, in a cream or a soap because it's poison. 
But you do have undercover agents, mercury hunters, who are actually finding it in Asia. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, there have been studies around the world uh, about you know finding what's on the market, especially in the in the lower priced market, because you know the, the bigger cosmetics giants they sell lightning creams, and mercury is not definitely not in all of them. There are lots of ways to inhibit um, you know certain types of skin coloring and protect the skin, you know sunscreens even. Um, but there are you know in the markets of the developing world. Uh, a problem with lower priced uh, things with with ingredients that are completely unclear to the consumer. Uh, in this particular case, we went on essentially a raid in the Philippines where they just went shopping and bought the stuff, bought various creams and soaps, brought them back to this uh, the offices of this NGO in Manila uh, and did a test. There's a gun, an x-ray gun that shoots uh, rays, literally a ray gun, at the jars of, of creams and gets an instant result. Uh, showing what the mercury content is, and essentially anything you know, there's a measurement. You know, one part per unit is is the you know the the borderline on on what would be safe. It's got to be less than one, and we came up with with numbers that were more than twenty thousand times uh, the FDA safe uh, limit. And how does that happen? Because that is not a mistake. Clearly, uh, this is somebody trying to get away with something. How does this grow into this massive sort of black market, as it were, uh, to to get this into these products? All right. I mean, follow follow the money and yeah. follow the ingredients. Um, mercury is it's cheap. You just you know you get essentially get these big rocks and mash them up. And uh, China is the biggest the biggest source of, of mercury compounds. Um, it's it's turned into a, you know, a powder that can be exported uh, anywhere, and because it actually works, um, it makes its way into these products as as a cheap uh, lightning agent. Um, you know, in, in this particular case, what we did is found the you know the packages that tested positive to the extreme, um, which again were brands that were fairly well known for the you know the anti-mercury uh, advocates out there and went up the chain. So this is the one brand we looked at was, was a brand that was said to be out of Pakistan and we contacted them in Pakistan and said, hey, how come, how come you're, you've got mercury in the product? And the answer was, oh, it must be a knockoff. You must be buying a counterfeit. Ah. And that sort of took us down, down the rabbit hole of, of what's real and what's not in the lightning cream market. Again, you're talking about parts of the world where regulation is you know, certainly not what it is in the U.S. or the U.K. or in the EU, um, where you never quite know. Even you know, the packaging, there are misspellings, the punctuation is bad. Right. So it seemed possible that this, that this was a knockoff, um, which sent us on another search to you know, get an actual sample that the company would, said was from them. And this took weeks of you know, thinking that it was lost in the mail and coming back. Um, in the end, we got a result from the company in Pakistan itself having it tested in Pakistan and they sent us the results and they said we are clean there's no mercury uh, in our official product what you got in the Philippines was a knockoff and literally as we were going to press we got the official sample from the company in Pakistan had it tested at the most reputable labs in Hong Kong and lo and behold it came up loaded with as much as 4,000 times the FDA limit for mercury Wow. And so what did they say when you told them right. that? They didn't believe the results. Wow. Um, so, so we're back, we're back again. And it's, it's interesting because part of, part of the research, and this is Sherry in Hong Kong, got this 
from from the uh, the company in Pakistan that made this, uh, you know, very low cost. We're talking about like a five dollar jar of cream as opposed to two, three times that amount for the big cosmetic industry giant products. So this this cheap this cheap thing. Um, we found out from them that they get the lightening agent that's the ingredient in their product from China. Mm. Um, so so yes. the the takeaway the takeaway is we know where it's coming from. We know there's a problem with it. It became pretty clear that even dealing directly with the company, directly with the products, again, this is a tiny slice of a gigantic industry, but drilling down into this one example that for the consumer, you just don't know. You just don't know for sure whether the right. thing you're going to have on your face has got mercury in it. Right, which is terrifying because it's so poisonous. And I know there was a stat in your story, um, the World Health Organization found that 40% of women polled in China, India, and other Asian countries said that they regularly use lightning products. Um, so that's a big number. Vernon, talk to us though about some of the, the detrimental effects of using these skin creams and products that have mercury. I mean, it impacts the people that use them, obviously, it impacts people around them, and it impacts also their wastewater. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is a cycle of, of poison, and it can be as mild, you know, a woman we talked to in the Philippines who have been using these products and developed a rash as a result. Um, it can be as mild as that to organ failure, to you know, diseases affecting your nervous system, to death. Uh, you know, the reason that you know, in uh, Alice in Wonderland, the Mad Hatter is mad is you know, we learned you know, many, many years ago that, that mercury is used in industrial purposes, in his case, hat making, uh, was driving people insane. It affects the nervous system. Um, and we know, you know just in the past century, we've learned that we have to be careful about what goes in you know, the fish we eat. Um, because it goes from being on your skin in a soap and a cream down the drain into the water and as you say into the, into the food supply into the fish supply and if you have pregnant women for example eating mercury laden fish that can cause birth defects right. so it's it's an entire an entire process that hurts the environment and hurts people um, directly and and indirectly, and that, and that's really what the you know the advocates who are trying these these crusaders against right. mercury and the cosmetics are looking at. And so, what happens next? Are they getting the attention of regulators, especially outside of the United States, where this is much more prevalent? Yeah, there's there's a, an international accord uh, called the Minamata Accord that goes into effect um, next year, which in theory will will completely ban uh, the the inclusion of more than just the teeniest amounts of mercury in any cos cosmetics um, the issue that we found here is that even the manufacturers don't always know what's in their products so even if everybody even if every country in the world is signs on to this thing tries to enforce uh, these these conventions on blocking the use of mercury in cosmetics it's a real uphill battle and you know what we're looking at and continuing to look at is to follow the supply chain up the line and see see what can be done and see where uh, you know this poison is coming into into a supply chain that's affecting hundreds of millions of men and and women. What about the other side of the story, which is the cultural issue, that why people feel like uh, in, in, in many Asian nations, um, African nations feel like they need to whiten their skin? Because that's a big part of this, too. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there is a, a long and, and troubling and rich history of, of different places, different parts of the world, where it can be colonialism, it can be class systems, where lighter skin can get better paying jobs. It, um, in Asia, there are long traditions of the lightness of a skin versus darkness of the skin reflecting whether you do agricultural work or not, different mm. uh, visions of beauty. And, and it's, it's a, a culturally constructed thing that's very different and comes from very different directions in different parts of the world. It's a really interesting part of this story is that they kind of, a place like the Philippines, which has a colonial history going back three centuries of the Americans and the Spanish, but also has uh, you know, some of the Asian uh, ideals that even predate that about agricultural work versus uh, the wealthier who are able to you know, stay in the shade and, and maintain lighter skin. I mean, it is a, a cultural minefield, but the, the yeah. outcome is that for the cosmetic industries, um, it is big, big bucks. Right. And let's go back to a Business Week story. It was on the cover last November, and it was a series of stories and data about the merchant cash advance industry. And it brought to light an obscure legal document that turned New York's court system into a debt collection machine. That's right, Jason. And now an update. It took a significant turn last week with the signing of a bill by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Here's reporter Zach Miter, who wrote the series last year with Zeke Fox on how shady loans are bankrupting America's small businesses. This was a great series of stories. Remind everybody, because I think it was about five stories that you guys uh, wrote about some great investigative journalism. Remind us, though, about what it was all about. Sure. So the stories were about how this obscure legal instrument called a confession of judgment was being used by this cash advance industry. That's they make very, very high business, high interest rate loans uh, to small businesses like pizza parlors and truckers and plumbers and things like that, how they were using this instrument to essentially be able to unilaterally seize the assets of these businesses whenever they felt like it. And um, a lot of our, our series was about the abuses of this uh, instrument. You could, you could file these things in court without really having any evidence that the, um, that the borrower wasn't paying. And then you could go in and like basically immediately seize their bank account and go after their customers to get money. And New York essentially became the venue of choice mm -hmm. because even if you were outside of New York, if it was filed in a certain way in New York, you could just go to a court, sort of upstate from where we are, get a stamp, and you get your money. That's right, so it was a nationwide industry and a nationwide practice, but they were all using courts in New York, and, and not in New York City for the most part, but in relatively small uh, county clerk's offices in places like Canandaigua, New York, and Buffalo. With these confessions of judgment, um, Zach, what was fascinating is basically as a small business owner, if you took this loan, you basically signed away your right to have your day in court, right, with the lender. That's right. It was almost like a, it's a little bit like a, a plea agreement in a criminal case mm -hmm. where you're, you're essentially admitting um, that, you, that you owe this debt. But in the case of the cash advances, you would sign that as a condition of getting the loan. So essentially, before you got the loan, you're already admitting that you hadn't paid it back and, and giving the, the lender the kind of total latitude to, to, um, to file it anytime they want. So what is, Andrew, talk to us a little bit about the change, the bill that uh, Governor Cuomo signed. Right, so the bill that, uh, that the governor signed last Friday uh, ends the practice when it comes to using these, the New York courts against out-of-state 
uh, debtors. Right. So you can still do it against uh, New York residents, but y you can't do it in the rest of the country, which is like where 95% of the of the confessions in New York were, were filed against people in Florida and Texas. So that's going to go away. And so why was this able to persist for so long? Because if you're outside of the mm -hmm. cash advance, advance industry, excuse me, like, you got to look at this and say, well, this, this just isn't right. I mean, it, it, it doesn't take a lot to say you shouldn't be able to do this. Yeah, it, 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 I agree with you. And I think the problem was just that this this practice had grown up so quickly over in just a few years, something like 30,000 of these were filed in about a little over two or three years. And so even though it became extremely common, it was virtually unknown outside of the industry. And even lawyers who represented these small business owners were kind of flummoxed. They were, they, they had no idea how to handle the, this, this situation because it was so aggressive and, and really no one had heard about it. Well, and what's fascinating is, I mean, you guys did a series of five stories, and you, you know, led us to a New York City official who was making over a million dollars, I think almost two million dollars, kind of being rather aggressive and going after these loans, right? That's right. So the other weird part of this story is that once you get this, this judgment entered in some courthouse in, in upstate New York, you then go to the, a, a city government uh, official in New York City, and they're the ones who actually go and raid the bank account, and they get a percentage of whatever they recover. So there are city officials in New York who still to this day are making millions of dollars a year working for these predatory lenders. And so what happens next uh, from here? Obviously, this is curbing the practice, as you say, for people outside of New York who can no longer have this used against them in the state of New York. Is there some momentum that maybe this practice will be sort of ceased or uh, at least curbed uh, in, in a more meaningful way? There are discussions of legislation at the federal level. Um, there's other possible state legislation people have talked about, although it's not clear if it's going to go anywhere. And there's also a lot of investigations, the Federal Trade Commission, the New York Attorney General, and criminal investigators in New York City as well are all kind of looking into some of these abuses. All right, Zach, thank you so much. Really great uh, reporting, investigative reporting. And as we talk about, when you, you know, impact journalism, you guys really brought about a change. Great stuff. Thank you. The Periodic Table of Elements is celebrating its 150th anniversary. The magazine's current double issue, all about those elements, including the creator of the table, who was a chemistry professor who wrote, in many ways, the ultimate chemistry textbook. Jeremy Keene was in charge of celebrating this big birthday. Tell us about the guy who came up with all of this, who made it possible for you to do this special issue. Uh, yeah, a Siberian fellow by the name of Dmitry Mendeleev. Um, you know, as most scientists do, he, he went to school in, elsewhere in Europe, he came back home working out of St. Petersburg, and uh, there was a lot of discussion in the scientific community at that time about what are the building blocks of matter? Why do some substances resemble others, why do they behave the same way? And there was this idea of periodicity, that you could order them in a way that showed how certain certain elements were like other ones. And that alone, just to get your head around, I think is oh, just yeah. phenomenal. But anyway, go yeah, ahead. No, and <laughs> they, you know, you do science by standing yeah. on the shoulders of giants, and he was following on the work of people like Dalton and others. And um, Others were trying to crack this and, and produce something that looked logical and, you know, sort of importantly with science, when you make, you have a hypothesis, you want it to be tested by others. And 
they can independently say like, yes, this is scientifically sound. And so he produced a table that showed the periodicity of the elements, so why carbon and silicon, for example, behave in certain ways mm -hmm. and they're, they're vertically aligned on the table. But also predicted... Because there's rhyme and reason to the rows and so on and so forth. Right. And when he did it, he predicted there were certain holes where we hadn't actually discovered the element Isn't yet. that crazy? Yeah. That's the yeah. other thing that he left openings because he knew that there was more to come. Right. And then so when I believe germanium is an example of one that they discovered it and they were like, that, that's where that goes. It fits there. Yep. And that kind of, that's sort of what gave it its power and others began to use it as a reference point. And, and you know, this was happening, sort of helped kick off an era of industrial chemistry and, and just a new appreciation right. of the way the natural world works. All right. For those of us who don't remember as well our, our high school chemistry days, I mean, how is it organized? I mean, what, what is the periodicity that you're talking about? Okay, so you know, you, you know the way the table looks. It's got this kind of U shape. Yeah. It starts at hydrogen and then it ends at uh, oganesson, I believe the pronunciation is at the very end. And um, uh, so your columns, you have, starts to get into, you know that the, the building blocks are, you have an atom, proton, right. and the electron, and then there's neutrons in there as well, but the proton, it's all ordered 1 through 118 by the number of protons that a particular element right. has in its atom. And then you have the electrons that circle around. Um, and uh, going from column to column, the number of electrons in the outer layer yeah. is similar. So that's why you can get on two sides, you have sodium, an alkali, and, um, and then you have chlorine over on the other side, and they bond really well to make salt. Or potassium and iodine, which are in the same rows below, they bind together to make, um, you can get potassium iodine tablets to, to uh, protect you from radiation. Right. Well, what's interesting is, right, there's, there is a real logic in understanding, but there's also, he, he made some moves, right? He added some rows just below because he didn't want the chart to go too wide. Well, that, <laughs> that came later. It yeah. was, but it was um, certainly kind of possible at the time. You would. Yeah. You've got those rows, the lanthanides, which are the rare, most of the rare earths go there. And then below that, you have a lot of the nuclear, the the, uh, the sort of nuclear radioactive elements go below that. Right. Um, but it hasn't and, changed much, right? Yeah. I think he died in the early 1900s, and it really hasn't changed. Some tweaks, correct? Yeah. But oh, yeah. I mean, it's been updated. The basic shape has been adjusted. When the original table was just like series of text, it was not. It didn't. You know, the squares and that kind of thing. Right. And the, the way that we think about the groupings was not necessarily pinned down at that time. But it's been. That's again. It sort of shows. The power of what he did at yeah. that time—that they could, you could still discover more right. about the periodic table. Well, and there's also a huge amount of power in the ultimate simplicity of it. I mean, you were able to explain the basics of it in about a minute. I mean, yeah. and that's part of what yeah. the genius is, and the and the legacy in some ways, and the and how long it's lasted. I think that's true. It's it's beautiful in a way. I think if you were to talk to people who are really excited about chemistry and, and the building blocks of everything around yeah. us you know they would uh, they would have a lot to say about the ways that they find it beautiful you know jeremy one of the other things that i think is just interesting in this story that talks about dimitri is that from what i understand he didn't he didn't totally understand all of what he was doing yeah, yeah but he mean, was able to do this well and uh, you know they didn't know the electron hadn't been discovered yet by the time when the table was built and there was still debate over what are the building blocks of matter. So we'd had experiments about the atom. You know, it was known, but maybe not 100% accepted that atoms 
were what everything is is built of. And so he he didn't really necessarily buy that that the elements could be broken down into smaller substances. And uh, he also was fond of ether, which you know this idea of an element that was around for centuries and wanted to try to prove that yeah. you know ether was actually an element and yeah. really did a lot of mental gymnastics. It's <laughs> so, like you know we all have our biases, and that's why science is there to kind of backstop yeah. you, right? Yeah. And it's also amazing, you know, just going back to this idea of how long it's lasted that no one's ever been able to, or no one's really ever taken a shot at being like, you know what. That's outdated. That's old. Yeah. You know, we're going to create a whole new periodic table. We're going to think about it in a radically different way. It's still here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they uh, people will try projects and come up with fun designs, or, or yeah. th- there's a lot of thought experiments. But in terms of just what you need to really understand the way the universe works, we just do not have anything better when it comes to explaining that. So happy 150 years and counting. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Fun reading. I feel like anybody who's teaching chemistry, this is fun for their class, too. Oh, I hope so. This is a big push for you guys, right? There's a two new cars that you're introducing. There's going to be more to come. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, we typically work with a family of cars, of derivatives within that Taycan model line. Uh, so expect a few more alternatives, also battery electric, to come within the model line. But of course, the future is electric, also with Porsche, because uh, we think that, that kind of concept, technical concept, goes very well with sports cars, real sports cars. Uh, so we're going to see more of that. We're going to see a cross Turismo of the Taycan next year. And beginning of next decade, uh, we're going to have a Macan, which is our uh, B-segment SUV, also battery electric vehicle. So we're moving into that electric world, but we're staying with combustion engines as well. So we are going to stand on three legs, the typical combustion engines people associate Porsche with, the plug-in hybrids, so a mixture between the combustion engine and the, and, and the electric advantages, and then that. Take us inside a little bit. Show us what's going on here. It's a very modern interior. Um, it speaks innovation. It speaks Porsche at the same time. So we're combining tradition and innovation uh, with that new, completely new developed cockpit. Uh, we've got this curved screen that gives you all the information you need. We've got another screen uh, that you are able to use to connect with the outside world. For example, the Apple Music with the first car manufacturer that has completely integrated Apple Music into the car with everything that you use from at home so there's a seamless transition and then we've got another screen over there for the co-pilot. Klaus talk about the fabrics and stuff because you guys have also embraced sustainability with this car right? Yeah Uh, you can have uh, you know the typical leather interior but you can also opt in for a non-leather interior uh, which uh, is in terms of haptics it's comfortable it's nice it's pleasing but it's got nothing in there from any animals so that's uh, that's something new that I think goes very well with sustainability when you look at a car like this there's not a lot of competition yet but there is some I'll use the T word Tesla uh, is out there you know obviously a huge brand has captured a lot of market share and mind share what do you take from what they've experienced so far from a consumer perspective and from a design perspective. Tesla surprised us all in a, in a positive way because they were bullish with battery electric vehicles and they took the battery electric vehicle development to where we are today. Now, we wouldn't have been um, comfortable with using the technology that was available four years ago, but now we are. Now we are because we have an 800-volt system. 
uh, first manufacturer doing that. We have a car that truly behaves like a Porsche on the street, so you can do as many accelerations, zero to 60, zero to 125 as you want. You can take it to the racetrack. Uh, and it's, it's, excuse my language, mind-blowingly fast. Uh, and that's, that's something that people expect from a Porsche, not because they use it every day, but because this is what they want to associate themselves with. Talk to us about how long, how long it takes to charge, how far it can go, because uh, I think everybody wonders about that. Yes, um, I mean, acceleration, of course, is something that you expect from an EV, but you also expect everyday usability. Uh, and that talks about range. Now, we haven't got the final range figures from EPA that we need to certify here in the United States yet. Uh, the WLTP figures suggest a range that is at around 450 kilometers. Uh, so we're pretty happy with that. But we did something to come here to New York. We drove down from the Niagara Falls. Uh, the first stint that until we charged the car uh, that we took was 240 miles. And we had another 45 miles on the car. Uh, so, you know, this is something that, uh, from my point of view, is sufficient, especially if you look at that kind of performance potential with that car. Um, and this subject range anxiety, from my point of view, is going to change because people are going to find out that over 90% of the instances where you charge your car is at home or at work. You know the car buyer, the car enthusiast, the driver so well. Where are we in terms of adoption? What moment are we? I think we're not at the tipping point that people, you know, um, naturally gravitate towards battery electric vehicles. Uh, but I think we're at a point where people get more, more curious about that type of technology. And, and again, Tesla, you know, they have plowed through uh, that environment and, and, and they have uh, started that trend uh, and we have great respect for them. So other car manufacturers, of course, have got answers with their products now. Um, and I, I think we're going to see electric car sales picking up dramatically. Uh, actually, if you want to take Porsche as an example, 2025, we say that more than 50% of the cars that we sell new will have um, electric drivetrains, either a battery electric vehicle or a plug-in hybrid. So every once in a while, something or someone or both comes along that becomes so much a part of our world, a reference that ties together people, marks an era in our society, and that was definitely the case with Sex in the City. We talk so much about the idea of zeitgeist, mm -hmm. and there are few people who are more zeitgeisty than Candace Bushnell. <laughs> She's here with us in New York City. She's got a new book out, Is There Still Sex in the City? It's a good-looking cover. You look great on it. You look I, you great. Know, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, your some, dogs. I have my dogs. And, but I think I should have, I, I should have been sort of coming out like at the reader, like, is there still sex in the <laughs> So what inspired you to write this book now? Really the same thing that inspired me to write Sex in the City. And that is that I felt like as a woman, I was in uncharted territory. Um, you know, once again, being in my 50s and when I was in my 30s and I was writing Sex in the City I was a single woman and um, uh, you know there really weren't supposed to be any single women in their 30s that was you know 20 25 years ago being in single in your 30s was considered what's wrong with you what's wrong with <laughs> you you have baggage why haven't you been able to understand how society works and find you know find somebody um, so that was really the rise of the sex in the city woman you know a woman who said I'm living by different rules for a variety of reasons I haven't 
found the guy. I mean, the Sex and the City woman is really the woman who in the 80s set out to have it all and do it all. How hard, take us back there, like how hard was it to be a single woman in the city dating, trying to make her way, make her impact? How hard was it? It was pretty hard. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty hard and I think one of the hardest things for me was really being somebody who, I came to the city, I didn't go to an Ivy League school, so I didn't have that protection. Um, I didn't really know anybody, and I had no relatives here. So this is a city that really, really thrives on connections, right. and you are uh, greatly protected by your connections and who you can get to and what circles you move in. And so being somebody without any of those cards makes it, I think, difficult. You really, really have to look out for yourself. And you were young. You were 19? I was 19 when I first moved to the city. And it was pretty, you know, the city was, it was very dangerous. Yeah. I was held up at gunpoint. Um, I think actually somebody, I once, I was in a punk fashion show. It was probably two or three in the morning. I was going home and I had a face full of pretty extreme makeup. Of course, it was two and three in the morning. I wasn't going home. I was going to visit a friend where you threw down the key. While I was waiting for this person to throw down the key, a car pulled up and there was, uh, you know, they were definitely looking for some of their prostitutes or whatever who right. had clearly run away. And they, one guy got out of the car with a gun and ran towards me and it was like, I got in the first door, but I couldn't get wow. through this into the second door. And, and I just turned around and I, and I just screamed, and I knew at that point, I was like, there's no way I'm getting in that car. Right. I was like, you're gonna have to shoot me before you put a hand on me. And I don't know if it was the extreme makeup, but he looked absolutely startled and shocked and frightened and ran away. So you, that is like nuts. So I, yes, but that kind of right. thing happened all the yeah, time. Yeah. And, but I was really fearless. I mean, right. I really, really, was fearless. Well, and you were fearless professionally as well. And, you know, in a pre-social media age, it sounds like what you set out to do was to create the connections, to your point, that I think we take for granted now because everybody is a click or an Instagram or a tweet away. You had to sort of do that the old-fashioned way. But one of the things you did was you fell in with a group of incredibly well-known writers at the time. You talk about sort of yes. the zeitgeisty writers at the time. Freddie Snellis, Jay McInerney, editors, and, and others. What was that all about? It, well, it was so much fun. It was, that was, I, what happened in New York was, when I first moved to New York in 1979, the city was broke. Economics have so much to do with this, and that's something that we never want to talk about. But, um, you know, the we city love to was talk about it all the time. Okay. We'll talk about and, economics and, and, in the city all and, day long. You know, the economy was bad. And one of the things that I've noticed is that when the economy is bad, feminism rises. Um, and I could be wrong about this, but it's yeah. something that I've observed. And so there was seemed like there was a lot of feminism in New York in the early 
80s. I, you probably don't remember this, but there were women on the streets with, you know, that were against pornography. And the pornography was, it was pretty brutal then. Right. Um, New York, right? Pornography in New York. Pornography in New York, 42nd Street. 42nd Street, right. It was, right. It, it was pretty bad. Yeah. And, you know, then there was that big boom in the 80s, you know, and, and so that seemed to start happening in the mid 80s. And, and so it was, New York was really a, a party city. Mm-hmm. And, it was also the thing that everyone has to remember is it was very, very small. I mean, this society of, you know, the movers and shakers or boldface names was probably literally 5,000 people max, but probably about 2,000 people. And it was really the time of the velvet rope and more and more exclusivity. So it was great to be on the inside of that. And life was incredibly exciting. And, you know, there was no, the gossip was, it was page six, which of course everybody wanted to and didn't want to be on. I mean, people were so afraid of, you know, bad publicity. Now, of course, everybody gets it. I I mean, everybody gets it on Twitter in a sense. So, um, but then you know, we had the big boom and then we had that bust and we had the trophy wife in the 80s, late 80s. You know, what was it? Black Friday in 1991? 87. 87. But wasn't there another crash in 92? Right. Well, well that was tech, yeah, the that, tech bubble. Well, that yeah, was 99. But like in 92 oh, was essentially right. when Bush goes out of office, Clinton comes in. That was right. the, the economy that was fairly unsteady yes that led and to that the economy fe- yes and so and that was a, you know that recession time was a time when well first of all there were a lot of perks because there were you know the big big companies they did take care of their employees but they would not pay you very much right. that was the time of you know everybody was taking a town car and they had these little luxuries that they would give you in order to make up for the fact that you were not paid well <laughs> paid very badly yeah. and then that also seemed like a time of of feminism um, really in in the 90s and it seemed like to me all of those women in the 80s who'd come to new york to make it who hadn't found somebody they were now in their 30s and they had careers and some of them were starting to be successful and they had a very different view of men. They really didn't want to settle and they didn't want to accept, you know, the things that they supposedly would have accepted in the 80s when they were maybe more desperate to get married. You're That's co- a very long-winded uh, conversation. No, but it's really fascinating. But your column in the New York Observer, from what we understand, is that you were talking about your stories, right, dating in the office, and a couple of editors were like, this would be a great column. Is that correct? Or how did it kind of come? To- correct me, because we want to know like, kind of how that came to be. Because that was really you know, the foundation I'm actually right. It's so it's so hard. I actually am writing something about that time of wow. when I was writing the column and how I got the column, and I do put the scene in where the character is, you know, talking about her dating life to all of the editors and stuff like that. So, um, 
Yes, I had a lot of stories. Right. And I was full of ideas for stories um, for them. And Susan Morrison was the editor when I was first there, and she sent me out to do a lot of, she wanted me to write about a lot of these different kinds of guys, like Richard Holbrook was mm -hmm. one of them, mm -hmm. who I hear is an absolutely fascinating man. There's a new biography of him. Yeah. I, I couldn't even get him on the phone. And, you know, and Jeffrey Epstein was also one of these, mm. you know, kind of questionable, what's going on, how does he get his money? And there were a few other of these types. And it was pretty normal. Uh, when you interviewed these big business types that you would either get bribed, they would try to bribe you or would threaten you. Right. So they would kind of bribe you with, I can make your career and threaten you with, you're going to end up in the East River with right. a cement block around your ankle. And that's going to wrap up our Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast for this week. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio Live Monday through Friday. That starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, grab our daily podcast, download and subscribe at Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcast. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. That is on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.